Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Nick Davidson. I'm a programme director here, uh, and thank you for joining us for this general election discussion on public services. So the last 10 years has been characterised by spending restraint right across the public sector and a political debate about which party can be most trusted to balance the books. Uh, but it does appear that the tide may be turning. We're only a week into the general election campaign, though it feels quite a lot longer than that. Um, but already the political parties seem to be competing over who can spend the most on public services over the next parliament. Uh, and only today, uh, the Labour Party committed to spending £26 billion more on the NHS, a whole £6 billion more than the Conservatives have pledged. But there are many more public services, from schools to adult social care to prisons, all of which can make a good case for additional spending. And whoever forms the next government is going to have to make some difficult trade-offs between which services they prioritise and how they go about raising the money needed to pay for these spending commitments. We think that a good basis for making these decisions is Performance Tracker, uh, our data-driven analysis of nine key public services. And we're delighted to have published, uh, in partnership with SIPFA, uh, the fourth edition of the report. Um, this year, for the first time, we don't just analyse what's happened to the performance of public services over the last 10 years, we also look ahead uh, what we think is going to happen to demand for these services over the coming five years and how credible the government's spending plans are for these. So to discuss all these issues, uh, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Graham Atkins, uh, who is the lead author of Performance Tracker. Uh, Councillor Sue Murphy, CBE, who's the Deputy Leader of Manchester City Council, uh, and Professor Andy Hardy, CEO of the University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire NHS Trust and Vice President of SIPFA. We're going to start with a presentation from Graham, uh, summarising the key findings from the report. Uh, we're then going to be followed by responses from Sue and Andy. And I'd encourage everyone here today and anyone who's following on the live stream to tweet using hashtag performance tracker 2019. Over to you, Graham. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Nick. Um, so I think over the last couple of years, we've heard quite a lot about the end of austerity. In fact, we've heard quite a lot really ever since uh, Theresa May famously announced the NHS's 70th birthday present last summer. But it's worth remembering that kind of under austerity, the underspending restraint, different services have had kind of different experiences. So this is a chart of how spending on different nine different public services that we cover has changed since 2010-11. And kind of what you can see is that spending on the NHS, spending on general practice and hospitals has increased. Now, that's not increased as fast as demand, and relative to kind of historical rates, it's still quite low. But both in both those services have seen spending increases. In schools, the purple line, you can see kind of spending increased for the first four years in line with the government's commitment to protect per-pupil funding in real terms, but then started to taper off since. And interestingly, in, in local government, spending on children's social care, that is spending to provide services for kind of the children most in need, has been increasing every year since 2010. Now, in contrast, adult social care spending was cut for the first few years of austerity, but has started to tip up. Uh, since and is now roughly about 2% less than it was in 2010. 
But in contrast, some of the biggest impacts of austerity have really been on the criminal justice system. So there we can see when we look at prisons, when we look at the police, and when we look at criminal courts, spending has been cut much more deeply. In fact, the only other area we cover where spending has been cut even more deeply is neighbourhood services, which is to say the things that local government delivers that are not social care, so food safety, uh, roads, libraries, all those sorts of things. Uh, but actually, I think one interesting trend, if we just kind of ignore the first half and look at spending changes since the 2015 spending review, has actually been that the pace of austerity and the pace of spending cuts has slowed. In fact, if we just zoom in on the last year, there's been a real terms increase in all the services that we cover. So in some ways, kind of ending austerity in public services, or at least ending the scale of spending cuts, has been part of a longer run process rather than <coughs> some kind of immediate um, political policy. But what we can see is that we've got here in a very haphazard way. So if you cast your minds back to the 2016 autumn statement, uh, Philip Hammond and Theresa May's first fiscal event, they said that they were committed to delivering the, uh, the real-term spending cuts outlined for day-to-day -day spending in the 2015 <coughs> spending review, with one exception, uh, which was additional money for prisons to address pressing safety problems. Of course, Philip Hammond at the time said that had been exceptional. But actually, we've seen that uh, that's not been exceptional at all. So in that same year, the Department for Health transferred a large amount of its um, capital budget into its resource budget. Uh, the following March 2017 budget, we saw uh, emergency grants for adult social care over the next three years. On top of that, we also saw some additional day-to-day -day spending for the NHS, as well as transfers from the Ministry of Justice and Department of Health uh, capital budgets over to day-to-day -day spending as well. Of course, that carried on. In the middle of 2017, Justin, Justine Greening, then Secretary of State for Department of Education, announced an additional £1.3 billion for schools. Uh, at the June 2018, we then saw the NHS funding settlement, which uh, significantly increased NHS funding this year beyond what was planned in 2015. And then last but not least, we saw some additional grants for children's social care and adult social care at the October 2018 budget, which means that now, in this year, the May government ended up spending £10 billion more than it planned to on day-to-day -day public services, uh, than it had planned to on day-to-day -day public services in 2015. So while we may have ended austerity, or at least <coughs> reduced the scale of spending cuts, the government has chosen to do so in quite a haphazard way. So it's been a reaction to clear pressures that have built up rather than being a, uh, a policy choice. Now, as Nick said earlier, the main new thing in this year's performance tracker is that we've tried to look at how we think demand for different public services will change. So if, you, if any government wanted to just hold things still and provide the same quality and scope of services it does now, we think that it would have to increase spending quite significantly on general practice, hospitals and adult social care, that is to keep up with our ageing population. Uh, we'd also have to increase spending on children's social care if the rate uh, of children placed in residential and foster care and defined as in need continued to grow. We think they'd have to also increase spending on schools given that uh, we're going to have more school children in five years' time, following the baby boom in the mid-2000s. Uh, we think that spending on neighbourhood services will probably grow in line with the overall population. Uh, but one interesting note is that we actually forecast or project that spending on prisons and criminal courts could decline 
uh, as currently the Ministry of Justice is projecting that there'll be a decline in the number of prisoners. Though, of course, if a new government were to come in and say, for example, hire an additional 20,000 police officers, we might expect that that might lead to increased demands of the courts and the prisons beyond what's planned. And one really exceptional thing that I think hasn't actually been much yet discussed is that following the 2019 spending round, the Johnson government spending plans were probably enough, assuming no further cost pressures, to actually hold the state of public services still in most cases. So following the NHS long-term plan, uh, we think that kind of spending on general practice and hospitals would probably be enough to keep things where they are. Uh, with the long-term settlement for schools, we know that per pupil funding will kind of go roughly back to around 2010 levels or just below. We actually project that uh, unprotected spending, that is all the spending the government has that is not already committed to, will not decrease as fast uh, as um, demand for prisons and criminal courts, so that could be enough there. And local authority spending power, that is kind of the grants they get from central government and the money they raise from council tax and business rates will increase slightly faster than children's social care and neighbourhood services. But that does leave us with one service, with adult social care, where we project that demand uh, is increasing at such a rate that even with all the additional money that was put in at the September spending review, any future government would have to spend at least 700 million more by 2023-24 just to keep up with the rising number of people eligible for publicly funded social care. And I kind of think the other half of this is that really after almost a decade of spending restraint, any government is inheriting uh, some quite severe operational pressures that we'll have to deal with. So this is a chart of how well the Department for Education is doing relative uh, to its targets for recruiting uh, new secondary school teachers. We can see that back in 2011, uh, they were recruiting enough, but really in every year since, we've kind of missed the target for the number of secondary school teachers we want to recruit by a larger margin. And kind of likewise in adult social care, you can see vacancies and turnover have risen rapidly to the extent that now more than three in 10 people who work in adult social care will leave their job each year, which is a shocking statistic. Uh, and on top of these workforce pressures, it's really evident that other kind of performance pressures as well. So in prisons, uh, there's been an incredible rise in the number of assaults on prisoners and assaults on staff that have continued even after uh, we've hired an additional 2,500 prison officers, just taking numbers of prison officers roughly back to where they were uh, in 2010. So that's yet to have an effect on prison violence. Likewise, uh, in hospitals, we know the four-hour A&E waiting target has been missed by an increasing margin kind of each year. And actually, what's really notable is even this summer, we haven't really seen much of a recovery in performance, which is normally where we would expect uh, hospitals to kind of improve performance outside of winter. So even if, uh, so given the scale of these kind of ongoing pressures on services and the rise in demand, uh, I think any government inherits quite a challenging picture of public services. So when we're looking at how demand will increase, we think it will rise particularly quickly uh, for health and social care services, but with quite notable increases for children's social care as well. In no service do we think they can keep operating as efficiently as they are now. The scale and the increases in staff retention and recruitment problems suggest it will be very, very challenging for public services to continue operating at the current level of funding that they have. And only in two services are we actually confident that the government has a credible plan 
uh, to kind of increase spending in line with demand and maintain performance. That is in general practice and in schools. And in adult social care, we are particularly concerned um, that funding is not enough to keep up with the rising number of people in need. Uh, yeah, so it's not a cheery picture, um, but this is the state of public services and this is the discussion we should be having uh, this general election. Thank you, Graham. So that's a uh, <coughs> relatively bleak situation that any uh, new government uh, will be inheriting, but that is just what the data tells us. Uh, and that it would be interesting, therefore, to hear from two people who are involved at the front line about the extent to which you think that the, the data that we have at a national level reflects the picture that you are seeing on the ground. So it would be great to go to Sue first for your reflections. Okay, thank you. I don't think I'm going to offer any more cheer. <laughs> I'll start off with that. Uh, but it's really good to see detailed analysis at a national level like this, particularly when we look at demand in the future, as well as what's happening now. And I'd agree broadly with the analysis of risk areas. Uh, one thing, though, uh, that's very important is different authorities have been impacted differently by spending cuts. So typically, more deprived urban authorities have seen greater reductions in their spending. So in Manchester, our spending power since 2010 has reduced by 29%, when the average reduction has been 16%. So what that means is we've lost £362 million a year of funding and our workforce has been reduced by 4,000. So that's a significant impact. I'd probably put children's services as higher risk than they are in the diagram. Nationally, there's been a 158% rise in serious cases referred to local authorities since 2010, and 88% of upper-tier councils are having to spend more money than they've budgeted for on children's services, so that has a significant impact. Adult social care is, of course, another high-risk area and is a great concern. I don't think anybody would argue against a fundamental review of how this is funded, and there really isn't a long-term plan by government about how we actually deal with rising demand in adult social services for the future. So across the country, there are about 1.8 million new requests every year for support. That's over 5,000 requests to councils a day. And there's a rising tide of demand as well in the lower age bracket where younger people are requiring higher amounts of care and will work through the system as they become older. One of the things that I'm not sure about is that reducing wages um, counts as an efficiency. There's going to be an impact from the national living wage and the real living wage. Manchester was accredited um, on Monday in uh, the real living wage week as a real living wage employer. Um, we have an issue with recruitment to some positions in local government and keeping wages low does impact on that. Also, one of our ambitions is to tackle poverty 36% of children in Manchester live in households in poverty. One of the ways to tackle that is by better paid work. So we see it as part of our role to actually pay people properly and set an example to other employers. Um, efficiencies in the market are interesting. The social care market is very complex in some areas, um, particularly children's services and, as I've said, people with learning disabilities. Um, and in those areas, market forces are actually increasing cost. 
And in other areas, the market is very fragile and we know that there's going to need to be some investment to improve the quality and the sustainability of their services. But where I think we can make an impact still is by innovation, uh, by working together in neighbourhoods, by putting together NHS services, council services and other public sector and the voluntary sector and looking at how we actually work, look at what are the drivers of poor health, for example. Many of them are socially determined, so that's about housing, it's about crime, it's about mental health services and how we make all those work together so that we can have greater impact. One of the big issues at the moment, of course, is the uncertainty. We've had a one-year settlement again. Um, because of the election, we won't get the details of the settlement until the new year, so we're currently trying to set our budget without being absolutely certain about how much money we're going to get, which is an interesting experience. And the short-term funding leads to one of the things that's mentioned in, re in the report, this cycle of crisis fixed with cash, which then goes back to repeat, and it doesn't resolve any of the fundamental issues. Um, and I think that the fair funding review, when we finally get to that, will be a challenge. We need to look at transitional arrangements. We need to make sure that local government doesn't lose out and that individual councils aren't penalised to make them unsustainable. Uh, the other thing that I feel quite strongly about is the interrelatedness of public services and some of the decisions that are made by individual govern government departments <coughs> have impacts on other departments and so I think the best example of how that has happened is I think we have a perfect storm coming particularly around homelessness services. Uh, we know about rough sleeping, a lot of that is exacerbated by decisions about lack of funding for mental health services and short-term funding for those services, together with the lack of access in some places to drug and alcohol service. But the thing that really keeps me awake at night, because this is within my portfolio, is actually the number of families and individuals who are becoming homeless who aren't rough sleeping. Currently in Manchester, we're seeing over 100 presentations a day in the town hall of people, particularly families who are homeless or at risk of homeless. On Monday, we had our highest ever number recorded. We finished at 120. By noon, we'd had 78 families come in who were at risk of being homeless. And that's caused by a whole range of things. It's austerity in general, but it's particularly rising rents that aren't covered by local housing allowances that people claim as part of their benefit. It's because of Section 21 notices where people can be evicted, no fault evictions, people can just be asked to leave by their landlord and have to go. It's caused by welfare reform. For example, the benefit cap on larger families leaves does have a minimum amount that you can be left with for housing. It's 50 pence per week. If anybody could find anything to rent, for that, particularly when you've got a large number of children, is amazing. It's a rising tide. And I think this can only be resolved by joint working and by sustainable funding for public services in general. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Andy. Okay, thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, obviously, I'll focus on health, uh, which I think actually is one of the more positive uh, areas we can focus on to, in terms of, you know, since 2009-10, uh, health service expenditure has been protected. So we have seen a rise in expenditure. In that period of time, um, hospitals' expenditures probably well has increased by nearly 20%. Uh, and over the last six years, we've seen an increase in expenditure for the general practitioners, which has helped, although you have to say it's still been below the average historical level, level of growth. So it's challenging. 
hospitals are treating more patients than they've ever treated before. Uh, GP practices are seeing more patients than they've ever seen before. Um, and in terms of efficiency, actually one of the areas there for general practitioners, they've often been using uh, support staff to do that, nurses, healthcare support workers, physiotherapists, etc. Um, however, some of those headlines, I think there are, they do hide some, some reasons for concern. Um, workforce is a major issue. We've seen an increase in temporary um, use of temporary workers uh, in the health service, and also obviously we're seeing longer waiting times, both hospital services and general practitioners. We've got uh, approximately 100,000 vacancies in the NHS at the moment, of which about 40,000 are nursing vacancies. So this is leading to big challenges. We've seen, uh, say, the, the increased reliance on temporary and agency staffing go up about 7% between 17, 18, 18, 19. At the same time, as vacancies going up by 15%. Um, hospitals have become more efficient in that period. So, so whilst we've been getting more cash coming into the NHS, we've needed to become more efficient, just stand still. Um, you know, workloads have been going up greater than, 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 than either the spending levels or staffing levels have gone up, and we are actually, even though those vacancies, we have employed more staff than we've ever employed before. Um, but it's absolutely unlikely that we could, that trend could continue. Um, a lot of the efficiencies have been driven, principal efficiencies have been driven by the public sector pay cap. And I think that saved probably about 350 million pounds in the last seven or eight years. Of course, that has now been relaxed. Um, and it had to be for many reasons, not least the morale of the, of the staff in the service. Um, we're seeing uh, reduced lengths of stay, which has meant we've got less beds in the NHS, so we can measure productivity that way. But actually, that is starting to become a challenge. Graham mentioned about winter, and we talked about the summer, we didn't see the, you know, the pressures coming off. If you look in the first two weeks of July, we saw some of the busiest times we've ever seen in the NHS, in terms of people turning up at our front door. Um, in terms of demand, uh, it is rising actually faster than those productivity gains uh, for many different reasons, not least because uh, of the age population, you know, demographics of the, of the population we serve. Uh, since 2010-11 to 17-18, we saw about 6.5% increase in population of the, of the country, but a 19% increase in those people who are over 65, and they have a disproportionate effect on hospital and health service uses. So, uh, for example, in, in, within hospitals, um, over 65s account for about four, just over 40% of inpatient stays and length of bed days, yet they're only 8% of the population. So as that gets older, that, those pressures are, are still coming along. Um, and the other thing that's, and this, as you said, multi-agency, etc., people are living longer, but they're having a greater proportion of their life in Ill, Ill health. More comorbidities, more conditions for us to challenge, you know, and that drives a lot of demand, both when people are in hospital, but also through general practice, drug budgets, etc. Um, GPs are obviously picked up very much within the report, a whole section on that. Um, whilst I say they are seeing more patients, GP numbers are falling, which is contrary to the target. To, you know, I think it was 2015, we announced 5,000 more. Actually, there were less GPs in practice at the moment. So again, workforce is a, is a big challenge. Um, many GPs are um, retiring earlier than they planned. They're dissatisfied both with levels of pay and their work-life balance, and this has become a challenge. But very much in inner city areas as well. My house, main hospital is based in Coventry. I'm sure we have the same challenges you do in Manchester for GP retention. That then also leads to um, don't have continuity of care with one practitioner, which is really important to some people and their families. Uh, but as GPs move and we look for other professionals, that just that disappears. What that has led to, whilst patients' satisfactions remain about the same, both in the hospitals and within general practitioners, 
the actual public's satisfaction with the NHS is falling in terms of what it's perceived. And as you say, you mentioned uh, A&E. Um, we haven't hit the A&E target for several years now. Uh, what's more, people are actually being treated within four hours than the proportion that is not being, has gone up by about 6 7%, you know, very, very quick times. So overall, I think we have benefited in the health service in terms of having our, um, our incomes protected over recent years. And as you mentioned, the plans going forward uh, see some growth. I do agree with the report's um, conclusions that that should be sufficient to meet increases in demand and probably at the same level of quality. But if you look in the NHS long-term plan, both hospitals and for, for primary care and general practitioners, there's lots of uh, plans there for ac you know, extending access, better quality. I don't know whether we can afford that with the money that's available. Um, and I so say we still have to keep on doing productivity and, and how far can we push that anymore um, and as demand rises due to age. And just to pick up one of your final points, actually, Sue, is around the interconnectedness of some of these different services. Um, adult social care. You know, you mentioned, Graham, in yours, in the, the report talks about the need for about 700 million just to stand still. The NHS often ends up being the safety net for all those challenges. And we see people longer lengths of stay, etc. And so I think um, for sustainability of the health service to be assured, we also need sustainability of adult social care and children's social care. Thank you. Um, I'm surely going to open it up to questions from the audience, so do think about what you would like to ask the panel. But just wanted to come back on um, some of your points um, quickly. So, as you say, despite the challenges faced by the health service at the moment, it has been relatively protected. Its budget has increased, and it's one of the few services that has a long-term settlement going forward. Obviously, you work in the health sector, but do you think that's the best place to spend £26 billion more money? Uh, well, and if not, where would you spend it? Well, we'll, we'll always spend wherever we're given. That's the nature <laughs> of healthcare. Uh, one, one thing I didn't talk about, though, is that another, another underlying challenge is actually underlying deficits within, within the NHS, particularly in the provider sector. So we've seen the provider sector in deficit now going back to 2015-16. And whilst you, you talked about some crisis, here comes the cash. We've had quite a bit of that at the NHS. Graham mentioned that. Uh, that with some non-recurrent savings, um, so for example, delaying capital expenditure, capital is a big challenge really. Um, the underlying deficits have not gone away, so some of that money is just going to be swallowed up by trying to you know, sort out existing deficits. But actually, to answer your question, for a long time now, I've, I've stood on a public stage in Coventry and said, you know, if Coventry was to be given 10 million for health and social care, where would it go? I'd want it to go in social care, because I think that would make my hospital more efficient, it would make actually the health and care sector more efficient as a little, you know, where patients and where people need their care. So 26 billion um, will be welcomed, and we, we will always spend it, but actually I think we need to think about how we talk more about integrated services, and so the, you know, the whole pathway of, of care that patients require, where can we get rid of waste, duplication, and spend the more money more wisely. Thank you. And so you, you mentioned the kind of the, the lack of certainty uh, at the moment, and the kind of the ability at the local level to, to innovate if given a bit more certainty. Would you happily trade off a, a bit less money for a, a bit more certainty going forward? More money and more certainty would be great. <laughs> I think there's a lot of short-term funding that we're not sure when we're going to, whether it's going to continue or not. Uh, Rough Sleeper Initiative, for example, uh, we've had some funding for to tackle some of the rough sleeping issues we've got. It's for a year, and they've said it might continue and it might not. That's not very helpful. It's not very helpful in recruiting people to what is a, an extremely challenging job. 
and he's saying, come and work at this job with the most complex people you're ever going to meet, but we can only guarantee it for six months. just doesn't work. So I think that more certainty would be better, but the fun fundamental problem, I think, is there isn't enough money in the system to start with. And Graham, if, if you had to choose based on the analysis that, that you've done, where, where would you put the extra money first? I think if I were looking through it, I, I'm going to cheat. Um, I wouldn't put it to one particular service, but looking within services, it's really clear that kind of some of the preventative stuff has been squeezed harder. So within children's social care, we know that spending on sure start and children's centres has been declining, or spending on residential care has been increasing. So if I were given a choice, I would try and put it into the bits of the services where I think prevention has been squeezed. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience, so uh, do put your hand up. Can I ask that you keep your questions relatively short, uh, that they are in fact questions uh, and not long statements, uh, and please, if you can tell me your name and where you're from, that would be great. Uh, we're going to go there first and then there. I coordinate the Hertfordshire Modern Slavery Partnership. I've got two questions, quite different. So one, I'm glad somebody raised about prevention strategies. Um, it'd be great to know at your level what you think would work. Um, ultimately, prevention's not great in terms of the five-year cycle, but we know it's fundamental to what we need to do going forward because we can't keep being reactive. Um, that's just going to mean that these services, the demand is going to continue to increase. And I was also pleased that um, you raised about the whole debt deficit issue. So um, what is the impact of the PFIs, the PPPs, in terms of those um, partnerships that have created those deficits and how much actually is spending going on those deficits which weren't necessarily there before um, the, sort of the end of the 1990s, really, when the Labour government obviously was allowing all that to happen um, and how much is then that affecting you going forward? So those are my two. Great, thank you. And then here. Hi, I'm Aileen Murphy from the National Audit Office. We've done a lot of work on financial sustainability and uh, social care, both adults and children. I was struck by the comment in the report that said that the children's social care had become less efficient. Um, and obviously, I haven't read the whole report, just, just that particular one. But I think my question would be, um, anecdotally, one hears that cases have got a lot more complicated. And in fact, the divide between what ends up being like a top-end children residential placement and what perhaps in previous years might have been taken care of by mental health services in the NHS is blurring. So uh, my question would be, how can you take account of case mix uh, going forward when you're looking at children's social care? Because I think that's a confounding factor. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then there was um, one other question there, man, the purple tie. Thank you. Uh, Chris Lux, CEO of Shore Trust. Um, first of all, thank you for the presentation and for the facts. Um, Question, my question for you is, is this acute or chronic? In other words, is actually enough cash the answer or is there a bigger problem that, under, that, that, that sits behind all of this? Um, can we ever have enough? Um, also, as, is, there, is there regionalism to this? In other words, if you telescope in, does this presentation you've got in front of us now on the wall, does that change? In other words, does it have to be targeted? And also, if you could rally social enterprise and charities um, behind you, where would you target them looking at the next five to ten years? 
Great, thank you. So that is a fairly wide range of uh, questions there from uh, the role of charities, local variation, uh, children's social care has it become more efficient, the impact of private finance deals uh, and prevention. Uh, I'm going to slightly cheat and answer the children's social care one first because I wrote that chapter. Um, <laughs> it's an excellent chapter, I'd strongly recommend it. Um, so you're absolutely right, we agree that uh, the difficulty of cases has probably increased so in particular the age of people entering the care system uh, they've become older and uh, older children tend to have higher level of need than younger children entering the care system um, so so we broadly think that demand has likely increased quicker than some of the other numbers would suggest so for example the children in need numbers haven't risen that quickly um, for example which we think is probably the the best measure of underlying need in the system. Our judgment on efficiency was largely based on the fact that we think there's fairly good evidence to suggest that the quality of services uh, has declined um, and that actually money has continued to increase. It's possible that money has increased at the same rate, possibly even quicker um, than demand has, but it does appear that, um, that the quality of those services has declined. It's a qualitative judgment that we've made. It, it's quite difficult to say. I, I, hopefully, if you read the chapter, you think it's a, it's a fair reflection. Sure. Great, I'm going to come to you next, Graham. Yeah, uh, I think on this question of whether it's acute or chronic and whether you can ever have enough money for public services and public spending, obviously, how much you choose to spend depends on the level of service you want to provide, which is inevitably a political decision. Um, I think quite plausibly, if you, the next government could spend enough to kind of keep things still. I think probably, given the state uh, the public services are in and, and the scale of expected demand, they might have to raise taxes to do so or cut spending elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, the question of whether it's acute or chronic, uh, I think currently we're at an acute stage rather than a chronic one. Great. Okay. Um, prevention. I think is a really significant issue. Spending money on prevention would actually save money down the line, but it's quite hard when your budget is really squeezed to be able to find enough space to do that. It would help. Adult social care, I think, is the key to reducing some of the pressures on the health service because stopping people from going into the health system in the first place actually produces better results and generally costs less money overall. It's quite a big ask, though. Um, is enough cash the answer? I think more cash is needed. I think the system is underfunded when you look at the amount of things that have been cut, when you look at the amount of cash that we've just had to take out of our budget. But I think even more fundamental is allowing some freedom in how that money is spent to be more imaginative in how you bring services together. I'm a big believer in the identity of place, so actually having services co-located within a neighbourhood I think is really important and makes a huge difference to people on the ground. So I suppose that answers some of the regionalisation. I think decisions are best taken closer to the people that they affect. So I think a regional aspect is important. You can see the difference that having devolved health funding in Manchester is starting to make when we can work more closely across social care and health services. And I think that the voluntary and community sector are absolutely fundamental in all of this um, and bring a completely different perspective to the way that services can be delivered. And I think at the moment we're running a slight risk 
of saying, well, the voluntary sector need to help us with this. Unless we actually fund those services properly, that isn't going to work. So social prescribing, for example, which talks about referring people into community organisations, if we don't maintain the funding for those community organisations and build their capacity, that isn't going to work. Yeah, I'll start with the, with the prevention. I mean, we all know that prevention is what we need to do a lot, lot more of. But as you say, within the five-year cycle, you don't see the return. Um, but I think what we need to think about is how we make prevention everybody's job. So, for example, clinicians working in the hospitals, do they take some time to talk about smoking cessation, obesity to patients, etc., healthier lifestyles? And I think that takes us into the, the broader preventative agenda of engagement of the populations we serve. Um, I often go back to a report many years ago when Derek Wanless put together a rocking, you know, health service spending, what would be required moving forward, but the difference between having somebody who's at a population that's fully engaged to non-engaged, there's a massive difference. So I think if we think about prevention as, as part of engagement with the populations we serve, is, is a way to take that forward. But we have to absolutely need to do more prevention everywhere. Uh, I will answer the debt question because actually I, my main, main hospital in Coventry is a PFI hospital, it's one of the largest in the country. Um, so yes, it does bring a, an additional cost to that relative to NHS capital, but I'm also very clear that without PFI, Coventry wouldn't have the hospital it's got. Uh, at the time, there was no other capital funding. It was the only game in town. It was signed off back in 2002. It's actually a well-maintained hospital, but it does come at a price without a doubt, which, which is over and above traditional treasury-funded capital schemes. But at the time, there was no capital available. So we, you know, we have to make it work. Um, but as you, you know, PFI really is dead now, dead in the water in terms of moving forward. Um, in terms of use, I think, some of the social enterprise and, and the charitable sector, I don't think we work close enough with those sectors anywhere near as we should do. Looking through, as we move towards integrated care systems, which I think brings us much closer together, particularly at that place level, as you mentioned, uh, I think we need to be a lot better, certainly in the health service, we can learn from local authorities about working with the charitable sector. Um, and, and in terms of where can we use them, I think in many, many places where there's some great expertise out there in those sectors, which we just ignore. Um, and certainly I think the health service has not been very good at that. Um, I should say on uh, private finance, if you're interested in finding out more, Graham, in fact, wrote two very good reports on this uh, in 2017 on the choice between public and private finance and how you can get better deals uh, on private finance. Um, and on the early um, intervention prevention point, just to, I guess, strike a note of caution that you know, even if you talk to people like the Early Intervention Foundation, what they tend to say is that it's, you're very unlikely to get cashable savings from prevention. You may well and you're likely to improve the quality of people's lives and that is clearly a perfectly reasonable public policy objective, but we shouldn't expect that preventative increased spending on preventative services will lead to substantial savings, particularly in the short term. Okay, I'll open it up to a new round of questions. We're going to have one here uh, and one next to you. Uh, John Gieve, now of Nesta, once of the Treasury doing cuts, um, <laughs> but not, the, not as bad as these ones. Um, <laughs> the, um, uh, everyone knows that over 10, 20 years, the cost of supplying the same services to an aging population is going to increase. Uh, and we don't seem to have anyone volunteering the sort of scale of tax increases that would support that, um, even the Labour Party. So one option is to move towards privatisation 
And that is, in effect, what's happening in adult social care, that more and more of the cost of social care is being transferred to individuals and families, and the state is taking a smaller proportion. Um, arguably, that's also what's happening on courts, where legal aid is being withdrawn and people are being expected to pay more. So have you studied how far that sort of um, hidden privatization is actually going on and how far it could go? I mean, should we just accept that in 20 years' time, <coughs> most of social care will be privately financed? Thank you. Uh, Tim Gardam from the Nuffield Foundation. Um, I wanted to <coughs> ask the panel uh, for their reflections on the increasing problems in the professions. You mentioned the <coughs> retiring GPs and the demographic bulge um, anyway in the GP population of people coming towards retirement. Um, similarly, teachers, the problems of retention of nurses. And what do you think is the, uh, are the keys to being able to begin to address that problem? Is it simply a matter of pay? Or um, does it relate to the other point that was made about freedom of action? Um, what, what would you like to see done to restore um, some sort of sustainability there? Great, thank you. And then a uh, lady right at the back corner. Hi, good evening. Thanks for uh, this meeting tonight. Um, one of the questions I would like to ask is, um, yeah, I mean, I agree with uh, plowing money into the NHS, which everybody agrees with that, of course, and it's very, very important that we do do that. Um, but one of the things I would like to really put to the panel is the fact that um, one is to do with the preventative, but it's another angle of it. Um, one of it is the fact that we are ploughing a lot of money into the NHS and we are not actually overall in it. Um, in light of the fact that we are actually planning, sorry, we are actually spending loads of money on um, unplanned pregnancies, unwanted pregnancies and unexpected pregnancies, um, which obviously costs the NHS quite a lot of money and also the fact that our government, central government, are actually ploughing millions of pounds um, into the NHS which then, then diverts it to um, um, abortion facilities. Can I, ask you actually, to, can I ask you to come to a question please? Right. Thank you. Which actually just basically um, causes the NHS to be in the, the black, really. So what I would like to actually ask the panel, really, is that why are we still um, using our NHS money on aborting babies, basically? Okay, For what reason? You. Because we're actually wasting money rather than spending it on the NHS, as well as saving the doctors and the nurses and put them back into the NHS rather than abortion facilities. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so uh, three questions there on uh, priorities in the NHS uh, about how to address recruitment and retention problems across these public services and the extent to which costs are already being passed on to service users and how far that could go. So I'm going to come to you first. Okay, and the question around professions and the challenge, uh, so I did mention in my brief comments at the beginning there around GPs in particular, um, there, are, there are a number of reasons why we have so many such a large vacancy numbers in the NHS. I, I don't think pay is the number one reason. I think pay was a morale issue in terms of over, um, I, I say the public sector pay 
cap for a number of years. But actually, if you, if you look at uh, these people are generally in it for the reasons because it's the job they want to do, whether they be doctors, nurses, physios, etc. And pay normally comes sort of down the list of what, of what their real drivers are, as long as they feel valued by pay, relative to the rest of the, the, the population. Um, the, the, the workforce supply is probably the biggest challenge. So people are constantly seeing vacancies around them, uh, and then people get very stretched and very stressed, and that's one of the reasons a lot of people are leaving. Um, many people have seen in the press lately that, I suppose it is pay-related, but the pensions issue has really affected uh, some higher earners in the NHS recently. And, um, and so we've seen doctors basically refusing to do any extra work because they don't want the extra money, actually, because of the tax uh, issues with that. So that is a real challenge. I'm hoping that somebody, whoever may be in government in the new year, might, uh, might look to address that. Um, but actually, it's, it's generally about morale. Uh, it's very difficult for some doctors and nurses who come into work in the morning listening on the radio or seeing on the TV that to hear that the NHS is on its knees. Then they come into work, they do really good hard work, they do the best they possibly can for patients. Um, and then they go home and hear the same thing as well. So I think it goes to the, the wider issue, I think, in terms of the ageing population question around what we can do. I think we've got to be more open and honest with the populations we serve about what, what realistically can be provided as public services moving forward. I don't think we've always been very good at that. Um, so that's the yeah, that's, that's issues there. Thank you. Sue? Um, should I tackle some of the questions about um, privatisation? Um, clearly, I'm a Labour politician, so I'm not in favour of privatisation. You wouldn't expect me to say anything else. I do think that there is the opportunity to give people more control over how the money that is spent on their care is spent and to give them more choices and more options about how they're in control themselves. Um, I think that Privatisation has had some unintended consequences within the care market, for example, where the market itself is very fragile or where market forces are driving costs up. So I think that it can be quite a dangerous road. So I th but I think there is a balance to be struck. I'm not saying that we should never use private companies. That clearly would be madness. But I think that there does need to be an element of control about how we spend money and more say for people who are in receipt of the services and not just the people who are providing them. That goes for councils as well as private companies, I have to say. Um, I don't intend to have a discussion about abortion. I think we probably wouldn't agree. However, we have had um, quite reasonable success in Manchester in reducing the number of teenage conceptions. So I think it's not just about health services, it's about actually investing in supporting young people to make wiser choices than they would otherwise make, perhaps, and working with them in that way. I think that that is an example of where it's not prevention in the purest sense of the world, but intervention at an early stage can actually help people have some realistic choices over what happens in their lives. Thank you, Graham. I think on passing on costs, that question is really interesting. It's something we do pick up on on the report. So you mentioned kind of the rise of self-funding adult social care. Another good example might be informal care, so unpaid care to provide adult social care. That's actually the vast majority of you know, care for older people that's provided in this country. So it's, if you take the ONS figures, it's about 80 billion compared to roughly 20 billion of, of publicly funded care and 10 billion of self-funded care. On the question of kind of how far could it go, Again, I think that's a political choice. One thing I would really note in the case of social care, though, is that currently half of public spending on social care goes to working age adults, and it would be very difficult to ask them to self-fund more of their care because they typically don't have the financial assets 
uh, that older people have built over their lifetimes. And there are some other kind of examples, so kind of from the trivial, like councils are charging increasingly for garden waste, to uh, kind of the more serious, that um, people at criminal courts tend to self-represent more often um, because of restrictions on legal aid, as you mentioned. But yeah, I think over the past 10 years, there have, there clearly we have passed more costs away for the taxpayer to kind of consumers of public services, if you like. Uh, I'm not sure how much further that could go. On workforce pressures, I think definitely it's about, um, it's not just about pay. A good example might be in teachers, where we know that kind of, of teachers who leave the profession, most tend to work a uh, few hours or work part-time than they did when they were teaching. And there is some evidence that kind of, it is as much about workload as pay. Um, but in terms of designing effective interventions for that, it probably just means if we're going to break the public sector pay cap, we need to make sure funding is well targeted to areas where there are you know, recruitment and retention pressures and shortages and try to address not only how much are people paid, but how can we make their lives easier within these jobs. I think prisons are also quite another good example when it comes to recruitment and retention because there the government has successfully recruited a large number of new prison officers to work in prisons, but a lot of very experienced prison officers have also left and there's a lot of evidence from inspection reports etc that one of the reasons why um, violent self-harm levels haven't come down as spending and staff numbers have increased is that the, the staff just are insufficiently experienced and so that it really shows the importance of keeping hold of those staff that really know what they're doing and can train up the new people coming in. Okay uh, another round of questions uh, we're going to go there, and then there, and then there. Robert Morland, I'm actually a former councillor uh, for Westminster and actually more latterly for Gloucester. Uh, I'm also a former member of the European Parliament and I did once work for the Treasury Board of the Canadian Government. Um, actually, I take up your last point, which is about prisons etc. Because am I not right in saying when this government came in in 2010, it highlighted, and I thought quite rightly, that we had terrible figures related to other countries on the number of prisoners that we had. Um, the failure of gripping reoffending, we had a very large percentage of reoffending, and it seemed to me there was a very obvious um, direction of saving costs, and I think the government said it at the time. And that, it seems to me, has not happened, and I'm wondering if that is needing to be a tighter area, because, in fact, we've gone over to saying tougher sentences for crime. And the other point I would make to you is productivity, which you do highlight in your report, and I'm actually striking struck in Gloucestershire how much, you know, we've gone away from having glossy offices for councillors. We actually have councillors, but we have officers on the county council doing a city council job as well. Libraries, for example, a great reduction of staff because one can bring in and train volunteers and nationally, certainly in Tumba of volunteers. I mean, the Canal and River Trust, I think, has been a pretty good example of how that has worked, and they now are actually opening canals. So I think there is a lot of scope on productivity. Okay, thank you. Uh, and then there in the middle. Uh, ben Zaranko from the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I'd like to know if there are any 
public services or aspects of public services you'd like to have examined but weren't able to because of data limitations or if there were questions you'd like to have the answer to but we simply just can't know because the data isn't there. Thank you. Excellent question. Uh, and then the one over there. I'm a journalist. Um, it's a question really about GP practices and whether we whether it's enough simply to recruit more if we can or whether we need to think about the structure of them because if there are increasing number of part-time staff, uh, temporary staff, then it's much more difficult to manage that with small practices. So there's arguably a case for going back and reconsidering the polyclinic idea which surfaced briefly in the dying days of the Brown government. Great, thank you. Um, so I'm going to ask the panellists to answer those questions but also to share any uh, final remarks uh, that they might have. Uh, Graham, I'm going to come to you first. Yeah, uh, I'm going to focus on Ben's question um, because there are, there are a lot of things that I would like to cover in performance track of a come. I think the two kind of services that I think would be really, really helpful to cover but we kind of really lack the data on what's going on are probably homelessness uh, and probation. Um, and I think it, part of the reason now with probation, it's, it's something to do with the fact that this, we've changed the system in 2014 um, and partly privatising it. But I mean, it, it really is a problem that government cannot say you know, what the consequences of you know, cutting spending uh, or even increasing spending in these areas are because we just don't know what's going on. And I think if I were to pick one question, I'd love to know the answer to. Um, we know that councils have increasingly kind of um, signposted people away from formal social care packages. Now, that could be efficient. They could be referring them out to the community and to family and friends who could help them manage on their own. Or it could just be a decline in the cut in service. And without knowing kind of the outcomes of what happens to people who are referred away, we just can't adjudicate between those stories. So I would love to have data and find out what's happening to people who are being signposted to other services. Thank you. Andrew. I'll attempt to answer the question around GP practices because it is a major challenge. I think we need to think of primary care in a more rounded way than just GPs. Um, and I think we are seeing the end or moving towards the end of the traditional practice model and partnership model of GP practices. Um, I have high hopes for the new primary care networks that have been put together, which is actually in effect bringing lots of different primary care, including GPs, together for populations of, say, 35 to 50,000 people. Think about neighbourhoods within the place and utilising other professionals, like I mentioned in my opening remarks, whether it be physiotherapists, nurses, uh, etc., by bringing them nearer to patients and so not having, and, and reducing the expectations of patients that they need to see a GP. They often don't need to see a GP for many of the issues they, turn, they ring in for, they, they want appointments for. Um, I think we, there are lots of benefits to economies of scale of larger practices that way, coming to coalescing, really. With prisons and reoffending, um, not with my local government hat on. Um, I'm also um, on the board of a company that is the largest uh, provider of education in prisons in England. We're a social enterprise. Um, so I visited a large number of prisons and seen for myself some of the challenges that the staff in there face. Um, and there is a recruitment drive for prison officers. If they recruited the full number that they're aiming at, it would simply bring us back to the level we were, I think, in 2010. Because, and at the moment, they are leaving as fast as they're being recruited. It's a tough job, I have to say. Um, and that does impact on the ability to offer real rehabilitation opportunities in prisons, because if you have a low number of staff, 
then they can't do things like safely get prisoners out of their cells and to where they need to be for education, for example. Actually, um, you'd think that there'd be 100% attendance if you're enrolled at a class in a prison, and it absolutely is not the case. And that's largely driven by the fact that there aren't enough prison staff to actually facilitate getting people to the classroom in the first place. So I think that does create um, hidden costs, really, and reduces the the opportunities to reduce reoffending, for example, uh, because we know that work is a very big determinant when people leave prison in how likely they are to reoffend. Um, the other comment that I would make about libraries being run by volunteers, yes, we've done that very successfully in Manchester and in a number of places, but volunteering isn't free. Um, the volunteers are free, they give of their time, but unless they get the right level of support, it doesn't work. So it's not quite as straightforward as that. I think the thing I'd take away from today is it really emphasised for me the interconnectedness of all of this and how the impact of one service not working properly or being underfunded or not being able to meet the demand has a ripple effect throughout the whole of the public sector and beyond. And working together, we can actually achieve more. It goes back to the cash question. It's how you spend the money. It's not just have you got enough. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to pick up uh, quickly on that, uh, the prison reform point, because I think it's a, a helpful lesson that whoever the next government is could take, because you're absolutely right that the original plan was to save quite a lot of money from prisons through sentencing reform, and they committed to the cuts, but then politically found the sentencing reform very difficult, and therefore were forced largely to find savings through cutting large numbers of staff which has led to the um, declining um, situation in prisons that we find ourselves now. So whoever the next government is needs to think very carefully about what their policy choices and the impact that those are going to have on their spending plans. So finally, um, thank you very much for joining us here today. If you haven't read all 240 pages of it yet, then uh, Performance Tracker is on our website and is available to read in more bite-sized chunks uh, during lunch breaks or indeed, during your day-to-day -day job. Um, thank you for coming. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, SIPFA for partnering uh, with us uh, on this project. And finally, um, could you please join me in a round of applause for our three panellists today. Thank you. Thank you.